Part 2 of Locked Up by Alfredo M. Bonanno. Now let's come back to the contradictions inherent in the concept of the sentence and the various ways in which it is applied. The theoretical debate on prison still contains the basic contradictions seen before, which are really unsolvable. In fact, these contradictions have become more acute in recent times. Not that they, don't, they didn't exist before, but the function of the sentence, the structure meeting it, metting it out, and prison itself, let's say around or up until 1500, was to hold people until given sanctions were applied, or they functioned purely as separation to keep certain people away from their social context. I. Piombi, in the 17th century, as you can read in Casanova's memoirs, was a prison in Venice that was self-managed by the inmates. There were no custodians inside the prison walls, only outside, and that was one of the worst prisons of the era. But already with the Piombi, we are later than 1500. We are fully into the 17th century. So the old prison had a different function. The aim of the modern prison is to, quote, recuperate. We are talking about the theory behind it to bring the individual back to a condition of normality. So prison has had two functions, the old one where it was simply a place in which the individual was parked while awaiting his or her fate, the death penalty, mutilation, exclusion from the social context, a journey to the Holy Land, which was equivalent to the death penalty given the difficulties of such a journey in 1200 or 1300 CE, and the modern one. Between these, there was the introduction of the so-called workhouses at the beginning of the 1700s, with the aim of getting prisoners to work. At a purely cultural level, there was a theoretical debate that we don't need to go into here. Suffice it to say that prison structures such as Bentham's Panopticon, where a single custodian could control all the wings at once, and bear in mind that similar structures still exist in many prisons today, saw the light at the same time as the Industrial Revolution. Some see a historical parallel between these two developments, the figure of the modern prisoner emerging alongside that of the worker in the early industrial plants. The industrial condition develops and transforms and has been the object of much criticism, whereas the concept of naturalism in law remains, and Greece naturalism is still at the root of the sacrality of the norm. It doesn't really make any difference whether the sacrality of the norm originates from the positivist doctrine, from God, from a law intrinsic, intrinsic to the development of animated beings, or is intrinsic to the development of the history of man and the vicissitudes of human reason, historical finalism. Anybody supporting any one of these theses is always looking for a foundation upon which to erect their own behavioral construction, their own castle of rules. Once the latter is built, anyone who finds themselves outside the fortified circle becomes a legitimate per- candidate for prison, segregation, exclusion, or death, as the case may be. Now, the thesis that interests us most, because it is still an object of debate and study today, is that concerning natural law, that is, a law that is natural to reason as it develops throughout history. This concept is important because it allows for some interesting modifications. That is to say, it has not been crystallized once and for all in the the will of God, but changes according to events in history. It developed fully with the Enlightenment in the 18th century which has all the limitations of the philosophical interpretation of the time, and contains two essential elements. First, history, then, reason. History is seen to be progressive, moving from a situation of chaos and animality, or danger, towards one that is safer and more humane. Bovio said, quote, History is moving towards anarchy, and many anarchists, at least of my generation, have repeated that. I have never believed it possible to draw such a straight line on this question. I am not at all convinced that history is moving towards anarchy. 
there's another shadow in this beautiful enlightened, then positivist, then idealist, then historicalist discourse that runs parallel to it. All of these theories were elaborated in the academia of power, in universities where philosophy and history are studied, places where the suppliers of the state prisons are hard at work. And what is this other shadow? It is the shadow of reason. Why is reason always right? I don't know. It is always right to sentence somebody. People are sentenced to the electric chair with reason. Nobody is sentenced to death without reason. There are a thousand reasons for sentencing people to death. A sentence doesn't, without reason doesn't exist. I have been in prison many times with reason. Their reason. It has been said that Nazism, realized in Germany in the 30s and 40s, was an explosion of irrationality, that is, a lack of reason. Well, I have never believed such a thing. Nazism was the extreme consequence of the application of reason, that is, the Hegelian reason of the objective spirit that realizes itself in history, taken to its natural conclusion. The most logical discourse in this sense was made by an Italian philosopher, Gentile, at a conference in Palermo, where he made reference to the moral force of the truncheon. By striking in the same name of reason, or by striking in the name of reason, the truncheon is always right, and state violence is always ethical, because the state is ethical. All this might sound stupid, but it isn't because it constitutes the foundation of so-called modern progressivism. We have seen this in the Communist Party, the Workers' Party, in Marxist so-called revolutionary movements, and also in the right, in right-wing movements. Whereas the right, for its own reasons of identity, wraps itself up in conventional irrationalism, flags, symbols, discourses on destiny, blood, race, etc. The former package themselves in, a variety, in another variety, progress, history, the future, the proletariat that was to defeat the bourgeoisie, the state that was to extinguish itself. And, I might add, more than a few anarchists tagged on to this discourse, going along with this enormously metaphysical and ideological swindle. They simply pointed out that history was not moving towards the extinction of the state, but towards anarchy, and that it was necessary to extinguish the state right away in order to reach anarchy more quickly. This ideological subtlety did not move the content of this journey an inch from the Marxist one, and it never entered anyone's head that it was the discourse of reason, and that it might be a swindle and serve as a basis and an alibi for building a wall around the different. That is why it is necessary to look at the optimism of the anarchists, for example, Kropotkin's, more deeply and critically in order to see the limitations of this way of thinking. It is difficult, to, it is important to see the equivocation of Kropotkin's, quote, seed under the snow, as well as those of other comrades of the anarchist positivist tendency. Everything that I'm saying here might seem far from the question of prison. On the contrary, this is exactly the theoretical and philosophical territory in which prison finds its justification. We should also look at Malatesta's voluntarism, voluntarism, which seems to be the opposite, but fails to come up with any solutions unless it is inserted within the, quote, objective, deterministic development of history in the direction of anarchy. I might have limitations, my personal capacity might be circumscribed, but history is moving towards anarchy anyways, so, it, so if it doesn't come about now, it will, do sometime, it will do sometime in the future. We should also take a look at the limitations of Stirner's individualism, something we tried to do at a recent meeting in Florence. We need to see if some, such limitations actually exist. And if so, what they are, obviously being very different from those of Malatesta and Kropotkin. So what conclusions can we draw at this point? Prison is not an abuse of power. It is not an exception. It is normal. The state builds prisons so that it can put us in them. And so, doing it is not doing anything strange. It is simply doing its job. The state is not a prison state. It is the state. That's all. 
In the same way that it expresses itself through economic and cultural activity, political management and the management of free time, it deals with the management of prison. These elements are not separate. It is impossible to talk about prison on its own. It wouldn't make sense, because it would be taking one element out of context. On the other hand, if this element is put into its proper context, and that is exactly what the specialist cannot do, the discourse changes. That is why we started off with the problem of specialization, because the specialist is only able to talk about his own subject. Quote, given that I know something about prison, I don't see why I should talk about anything else. I believe that collective experiences, if this concept still means anything, are composed of so many individual moments. Woe betide if we are to obliterate these individual moments in the name of a superior one, that were that which the Marxists defined, defined subsumption. Subsumption of society, never. These terroristic processes must be absolutely condemned. The individual has a moment that is his or hers, and the prisoner has his or her moment, which is not the same as that of another prisoner. I absolutely disagree with those who say that I, who have been in prison, must struggle more effectively than someone who has not. No, because I struggle differently from someone who has never been in prison, and just as differently from one who has done more time than me, and so on, and vice versa. I could meet a comrade who is, in, who is capable of making suggestions to me, of making me understand, feel, imagine, or dream a different kind of struggle, even if he has never been in prison. No specialization. Remember the first things that were said this evening. No professionality. No talk of professors, even less professors of prison matters. Fortunately, there is no specialization here. We are not at university. We are all individuals who seek each other, who meet, go away, come together again, moving along the basis of affinity, also transitory, which can disappear or intensify. We are like a multitude of atoms in movement, which have a very strong capacity for reciprocal penetration. It is not a question, as Leibniz says, said, of monads without windows. We are not isolated. We have our individual value. All individuals do. Only by keeping this ineliminable, ineliminable moment constantly presented, present is just is it possible to talk of society, or the capacity to act, move, and live together? Otherwise, any society at all would be a prison. If I must sacrifice even a tiny part of my individuality in the name of the off beyond, overcoming in the Hegelian sense of the term, in the name of an abstract principle, even anarchy, even freedom, then I don't agree. Prison is certainly an extreme condition, and so, like all total conditions, total institutions, it shows one's true fabric clearly. It's like pulling a, fle- a piece of cloth as far as it can go, and just before it tears apart, the weave begins to appear. There, the individual who submits to the most violent conditions reveals the cloth of which he or she is made. Maybe he or she will discover things about themselves that they would never have imagined in other situations. But this starting point is important and fundamental. No element, idea, dream, or utopia can take away this individual moment, nor can the latter be sacrificed to any of the former. But let's come back to our argument. Prison is the normality of the state, and we, who live under the state with our daily lives regulated by its pace and times, are living in a prison. In my opinion, this has been incorrectly, but interestingly, defined as an immaterial prison. That is to say, it is not visible as such. It does not enclose us in such a direct, shocking, in such a direct, shocking way as the walls of a prison do. It is nevertheless a real prison, in that we are forced to submit to and adopt models of behavior that we didn't decide upon ourselves but have been imposed from outside, about which we can do very little. But prison is also a construction. It is a place, 
an ideology, a culture, and a social phenomenon. <clears throat> that is, it has a specific identity. So if on the one hand we bring out of this specificity, specificity, we cannot at the same time dilute it into society and simply say, we are all in prison, my situation was no different when I passed through that wretched door and found myself in an empty cell with a loud radio blaring. I felt a trauma at the moment I walked through that cell door and heard someone lock it behind me. This trauma exists. It's not purely psychological. It also consists of a fellow with a bunch of keys that jangle continuously, the noise of which you carry with you for the rest of your life. You never forget it. It's something that rings in your ears, even at night while you're asleep. That noise of the keys. Someone locking the door on you. This fact of closing the door is, I believe, one of the most horrifying things that one human being can do to another. For me, someone who holds a key in his hand and locks a human being behind a door, no matter what the latter might have done, for me, anyone who closes that door is an absolutely contemptible person, one about whom it is impossible to talk about in terms of human fraternity, human features, and so on. Yet there are moments when you need this individual, when a psychological mechanism connected to solitude lets loose. When you are alone, in your hole, you've been alone for a month, a month and a half, two months. The days pass and you don't see anyone. Sometimes you hear incredible noises, at others, nothing. And you hear a footstep there outside. You know it is his footstep. You're absolutely convinced that this is the worst, most contemptible person on earth. Yet... At a certain point, you stand behind the door and wait for him like a lover. Because when that despicable person passes, he throws you a glance that reminds you that you are a human being. Because he too has two legs, two arms, and two eyes. At a certain point, you see him differently. You no longer see the uniform, and you say to yourself, Humanity still exists after all. That is what that hole, that little cell leads to. So you now have something specific that can no longer be seen as the dilution of prison into daily life. This is why prison is not immaterial. That is why prison is both a specific architronic structure and is at the same time diffused. We are all in prison, but prison is also something different. We must not only see it <clears throat> as something different, because if we did, we would cease to understand it. I understand that all this might seem contradictory at first, but that, that is just an impression. If you think about it, it is no more contradictory than anything else. The sentence, we said, is the mechanism that the so-called important philosophers think of what Kant has said about the, the sentence. This great philosopher said something horrendous. He said, quote, On an island there is a community, and this community dissolves itself and everybody goes away. Only one man remains, a murderer, the last to kill a man. Now the community is broken up. There is absolutely nothing to safeguard. There is no longer a common good. There is nothing left to revive. Well, that man must still do his sentence. <clears throat> Unquote. This is what Kant said, the philosopher who opened up the perspective on modern historicism. Bah. Anyway, <clears throat> so the sentence. What does it do? According to theoreticians of every hue, it restores the equilibrium that has been upset. It redresses a balance. But what does the sentence really do? It does something else. First of all, it precipitates the individual into a condition of uncertainty. <clears throat> that is, anyone facing such a construction, such an efficient mechanism, finds himself before something bigger, finds himself before something bigger than himself. This mechanism is composed of lawyers, judges, carabinieri, police, house searches, pushing and pulling, curses, being stripped naked, flexions, once there used to be anal inspections, which anyone who hasn't been subjected to can't imagine, the conditions of detention in the prison. That is the sentence. You are still at the beginning. You still haven't been accused of anything yet. Just a few words on a piece of paper bearing an article of the penal code that you don't even understand. But already the sentence enters your blood and becomes part of you. And how does it become part of you? By putting you in a condition of uncertainty. 
You don't know what's going to happen to you. You can be at the most hardened criminal. You can be the most hardened criminal and find yourself in a state of uncertainty. And I know that because I have spoken to people who are apparently in control. People who, when they come into prison, greet the officer in charge, greet this one and that one. But when they go to bed and put their head on their pillow, start to cry. Because the situation is like that. When you come to find yourself in these conditions, it is not easy to see how it's all going to end. I've also spoken to many comrades. We have joked together about the situation in prison. But we couldn't deny that we have been placed in a situation of uncertainty where you don't know what to expect the next day. And this condition of uncertainty is perhaps the essential element. The one at the root of all of the syndromes, all the specific illnesses, everything that emerges from time in prison. You will be in a condition of uncertainty all the time you are inside. In fact, up until three minutes before you go through the last gate, bear in mind that there are twenty. There are about twenty between your cell door and the outside one. You don't know whether exactly two meters away from the last gate a revolt will break out inside. You'll get involved in it and you're lost. You can start talking again twenty years on. So, this uncertainty is practically inside you. You know it's inside you, and you can't say, Okay, after all, I'm a revolutionary. All this doesn't affect me. Prison, death, 20 years, 2 months. Comrades, that's bullshit. It's bullshit that I've said, Me too. To give courage. To give myself courage. And also to give courage to others. My the family. My mother. My father. Who were old and were broken-hearted by the visits. When I went to prison the first time, they cried, poor things. These are difficult situations, and you project uncertainty towards the outside. You project it on those who you love, you, who love you, your children, on a whole situation that doesn't disappear with chatter. I remember when, precisely finding myself in isolation for the first time 25 years ago, I started to sing anarchist songs, and I hate anarchist songs. How did I manage to sing these songs in there? I was singing to give myself courage, like a child that starts to whistle or tell fairy tales, so as not to be scared in the dark. The other element, which I experienced palpably, was the deformation of communication. You can't make it to communicate. In order to be able to say something, let's say, to change your lawyer, a whole bureaucratic procedure must be gone through. In the evening, you have to stick a piece of paper on the armored door of your cell, saying that you want to go to the registry office the next day. The next day, they call you, and you, set, you are set off to the office. Calculating, let's say, that it's about 75 meters away, you think you'll only be a few minutes, but no. It can take from 10 minutes to an hour and a half to cross these 75 meters. And... Like an idiot, you wait behind each door for some angel in uniform to come and open it for you. Track, track, can you pass the first, second, third, fourth obstacle and everything else? This changes your world completely. What does it change? It changes your whole conception of time and space. It sounds easy because we cope with this concept like we do with money, with like coins that we use every day. But it's not so simple because time is not what is marked by the clock. That is absolute time, Newton's time, that has been determined once and for all. Alongside this time, there is that of a French philosopher, and this is known as the real duration. That's to say, there is time in the scene indicated by St. Augustine. Time as consciousness, as the duration of our consciousness, that is waiting. We measure waiting by the beat of our sensations. And its duration is not at all equal to the absolute time of the clock. Once clocks were forbidden in prison, now, since the prison reform in 1974, they are allowed. And it's worse, in my opinion. Once you never knew what time it was, you guessed it with the sun or with the prison routine, which constituted a natural clock, an institutional clock. Hence, you knew what you knew that at half past seven the armored door would be opened and the day would begin. The noise they make in opening that door has its historically recognizable function, which has developed in various ways throughout time. 
While doing some research on the Inquisition, I found instructions in a manual of 1600 on how to open the door in cases where the Confratelli della Compagna di Bianchi, the ones <coughs> with the white hoods, that is, had to take a condemned prisoner to the scaffold. The Spanish Inquisition also existed in Sicily, so they were well organized. This belonging to the Campagna di Bianchi, ones with the white hoods, had the job of assisting condemned prisoners during the three days preceding execution. One of their tasks was to ensure that they were ready to be brought to justice. How did they do that? By inventing a particular technique. They acted as though they were about to take the prisoner to the scaffold. They woke him up early, made a lot of noise, marched in groups with all those entrusted with this operation, the harbourers, etc. But it wasn't true. It was merely an atrocious staging, simply to see how the poor devil would react. If they reacted properly, that is, didn't go crazy, they were considered ready for the final operation. So opening an armored door isn't just isn't like opening just any door. These well-built young men instructed in Parma had received particular dispositions. The armored door is to be opened with extremely violent blows. The sleeping prisoner must jump up in the air. From that moment, he must think, There, the world of dreams is over. Now the institution begins. Now they are telling me what to do. Half past seven, you don't go out. You go out at half past eight. In other words, you do everything according to the prison routine, which is obviously what they want. For example, I don't know, something important. Some, the passage of time is also marked by other things. The milk arrives in the morning. I have thought a lot about these little things. Anyway, there's nothing else to do in prison, so what do you do, you think? Then they bring you an egg at, or two at ten, and then at half past ten or eleven, the fruit. Then at twelve o'clock, lunch. Then at two, they bring you something else, I don't know, some jam. Why? Because that's the way time, that way the time passes, they regulate it for you. <clears throat> the arrival of the food is an event. You frame it within this segregated context, then that is what your life boils down to. All this seems piffle, but in my opinion is science. Real prison science. What do the so-called prison operators who think they know everything know all about all this? First of all, the university professor has never been in prison. Normally those who take an interest in prison don't have the faintest idea of what it really is. Let's leave aside law professors who don't even know what they're talking about, poor things. We're talking about prison workers who, the closer they seem to get to the inside of prison, the less they possibly understand about it. Lawyers and judges, yes, they have been inside prisons. But where? In the external part, in the visitors' rooms. Apart from exceptional cases where a superintendent from the court comes into the wing, but he only comes into the wing, not the cells. Lawyers and judges don't normally know what a prison is. I'll go further. Even the prison workers, the psychologists, social workers, every species of the pig, don't know what prison is. In fact, what is their job? They go into rooms that are reserved for them, call the prisoner, have a fine discussion, then go home and eat their dinner. And moreover... Even the screws don't know what prison is, and can tell you. Can I tell you from that from personal experience? And I can tell you that from personal experience. For example, when I was in Bergamo prison, and the other prisoners and I, within the limits of our possibilities, organized. We didn't call it a revolt, but a kind of protest because they were taking out the plugs we used to block the holes that the screws had made in the toilets to. Con- to control us even there. All prisoners block these holes as best they can with anything they can lay their hands on, paper, pieces of wood, hanging towels, and a hundred other things. Usually these defenses are left alone, but sometimes the governor in Bergamo gave the order to get rid of them. So the screws pushed them out with a pencil. In, order, in answer to our protest, the governor replied, Why are you making such a fuss about nothing? After all, we are all men. What? We are all men. You are the governor, and I am the prisoner, and I don't want the guard looking at me when I'm in the toilet. So the governor thought the problem was something trivial. 
But this barracks camaraderie showed that, although he was the governor of a prison, he had no idea what prison is. Because I not, do not go to the toilet along with my cellmate, a prisoner like myself, a companion of mine, whom you certainly can't, in terms of humanity, friendship, and personal relationship, compare to a prison governor. That's obvious. And when the toilet was in the cell, one invented a thousand expedients to find the way to use it alone. The toilet used to be right inside the cell. When I was in prison for the first time in Catania, nearly a quarter of a century ago, I got work registering the prisoners' accounts, and I noticed that many prisoners consumed a large amount of S. Pellegrino magnesium. When I asked why, they explained that taking this purgative every week, their shit didn't smell, or at least it did less. What does that show us? That the governor and the screws have no idea what prison, about what prison is. Because to understand prison, you must be on the other side of the door when the guard locks it. There is the question of the key. Without the key, it's all theory. So, to get back to the point, of course prison is composed of the walls, the cot with the machine gun patrolling them, the exercise yard, the mist that descends on the yard and you don't know where you are, what planet you're on, whether you're in exile on the moon, etc. But basically prison is a cell. And you can be alone in that cell, or with others. And these are two separate conditions and two different kinds of suffering. Because, yes, we are strong, etc., but I have done prison alone, and it's no joke. The last time I did almost two years alone, and it was heavy. Perhaps with others it is even heavier, heavier, or at least it is heavy in a different way, because the animal man behaves strangely, strangely in reclusion. And so, this is a rough outline of the problems to do with prison, told lightly, and I won't go into certain other questions. I had made a note of some other thing, about some other problems, but they are not very important. I just want to mention a couple of things. First, the smell. Prison has a particular smell that you never forget. You smell it in the morning. I remember it's a smell that you find in three other places. Bars, when they open in the morning. Billiard rooms and brothels. In places where the human animal finds itself in particular conditions of suffering, there is a particular odor and prison has the smell, and you never forget it. You notice it most in the morning when they open the armored doors. Don't ask me why. The other problem is noise. The noise is really something terrible. There's no way you can get used to it. It's not just the music, the Neapolitan songs that they torture you with. You can't describe it. It's something horrendous. Whereas the problem of secondary importance, at least as far as I could see, and not only from my own personal experience, was the problem of sexual desire. This is not such a problem as it might seem from outside. I saw the prisoner's response to a questionnaire sent around by a ministry about 15 years ago concerning the eventuality of setting up a system of so-called love hours, let's say, with one's legitimate partner. And it was almost completely negative. Now let's look at the final part of the question. If you're not too dazed, what can the perspective of prison be? That is, in what way is power trying to restructure prison conditions, which <clears throat> obviously are never static? The uncertainty is also ambivalent as far as rules are concerned. There is a law that says that the prisoner must be given a copy of the prison rules when he or she arrives in order to read and respect them if they want. In some prisons, like Doza in Bologna, for example, they give a three-page extract, but the actual rules are a beast of 150 pages. So, incredible things happen. If someone gets hold of the rule, all the rules and reads them carefully, they can end up creating problems for the institution. I said prison is something that is constantly undergoing professional trans profound sorry profound transformation, and in my opinion, this is my personal idea, is moving towards an opening. That is, it is tending to open up and have people and participate. In the 70s, it took you about an hour to make a fried egg or a coffee in your cell because you had to make a kind of construction with empty matchboxes covered in silver paper from cigarette packets. Then put solid gas under it, the so-called mela, 
then light this thing, always messing about with this alchemy near the toilet because there are no tables or chairs. You had to fold up the bed in the morning, so there was a kind of platform to sit on. There is a considerable difference between these primordial conditions and those of today, when there are even structures where you can cook in the judicial prisons as well as the penal institutions. The latter are even better equipped and more, quote, open. The reform has been approved. This reform has certainly improved prison conditions to some extent, of course. It has created a few extra moments of sociality, made other things worse, and led to a greater disparity between prisoners. The Doza, for example, is a model prison. Built as a special high-security prison, it is now being used as a normal one, and it is infinitely worse than the old San Giovanni. I have been in both, and can honestly say that the Doza is worse. But whereas there were bars over the windows at San Giovanni, then the metal grid behind the bars, then the ventilation grid in the Doza, there are only vertical bars, and you seem to be more free. But with all that conditions on the whole are worse. They are more inhuman. Whereas at San Giovanni you couldn't leave your cell and walk about in the wing, in the Doza you are free to do so, always in the hours fixed by the direction. So there are differences. But these are, you might say, pulsations within the prison system. It's sufficient for something to go wrong, and the wider berth immediately restricts itself. If, instead of one prisoner hanging himself every 15 days, there is one a week, things immediately start to change. At the end of 1987, precisely at the Doza, there was a simple protest, which the prison authorities responded to with an armed attack against the infirmary led by the Nazi-style military commander of the prison. In such situations, prison changes in a flash. But these pulsations inside particular prisons are related to the pulsation of development and transformation in the prison system as a whole, which is moving towards an opening. Why is this? Because it corresponds to the development of the prison system, the extension of its peripheral structures and the structures of the state as a whole, that is to say, there is more participation. This concept deserves to be looked at more closely. Bear in mind, on the basis of what we were saying before about contradictions, that the concept of participation is not at all separate from the concept of separateness. I participate, and in an initial phase of this participation, I feel closer to the others who participate along with me. As this increases, however, the very process of participation isolates me and makes me different from the others, because each one follows his own road in this participation. Let's try to illustrate this concept better, because it is not very simple. You can see participation everywhere, in schools, in the factory, in the various functions of the unions, in school and factory councils, basically in the whole world of production. Participation comes about in different ways according to the situation. In the ghetto areas of cities, for example, take the St. Cristoforio area in Cantania, Sicily, for example. It is one of the biggest ghettos in the town, with a high concentration of social problems. But things are changing. There are the family consultancies, whereas once the police couldn't even circulate there. How has this greater participation changed the area? Has it brought it closer to, or taken it further away from the rest of Catania? That is the question. In my opinion, it has isolated it from the other areas even more, by making it even more specific. <clears throat> In my opinion, the aim of particip participation is to divide. Prison is opening up to participation. There are structures for an inside-outside dialogue, such as prison territory, let's say, composed of a bunch of swindlers, third-rate ideologues, representatives of town councils, unions and schools, and delegations from the Bisphoric. All this mob do is go to get authorizations to go inside the prison based on Article 17 and contact the prisoner, thereby establishing a contact between inside and outside. Any prisoner has 100, 1,000 problems. He or she is like a patient, and you go into a hospital and talk to a patient, they have all the illness in the book. If you go into prison and talk to a prisoner, you will find that 
he or she has a thousand problems. Above all, they are always innocent, didn't do anything wrong, and their family is always needy. Well, the things prisoners always talk about. On the other hand, they each look after their own interests, and in any case, it's not appreciated in prison for someone to come out with. Prison doesn't do anything to me. Bullshit. Rubbish. No, that wouldn't go down well. Participation causes further separation, a greater division inside the prison. Because the few people of a consciously illegal disposition, that is to say, the ones who really are, quote, outlaws, stand out. In a prison population of, let's say, 100 prisoners, you can already distinguish them in the yard. There you can see who the serious people are and who are not. And you can see that in many ways, from the many signals they give out. A whole discourse develops inside based on the way they walk, the choices they make, the words they use. I know many of these things can be taken the wrong way. I am not praising stereotypical behavior. What I'm saying is that there is a specificity, specificity inside prison. There is the prisoner who is aware of his job of being a prisoner, his qualification as a prisoner, and there is the prisoner who finds himself locked up by mistake, who might very well have been a bank manager, or simply a poor idiot. There is even the prisoner who finds a transitory systemization in, process, in prison, who sees prison as a passing accident, as short as possible, or a form of social assistance. I have seen people get themselves arrested just before Christmas, because at Christmas they give Christmas dinner. You think that's nothing? Or, to get properly cleaned up, or to be cured, because for many of them there is no other way to get treatment, and there is not one, but hundreds of such cases. The reader knows some of these myself. But there is another prison in population, those who pride themselves in being, out, quote, outlaws, and being able to attack determined structures of the state their own way. This population is obviously not prepared to play the game of participation, so will stand out and be subjected to very precise separation. This is why... This is why participatory prison is a prison of division, because it separates. Not all (coughs) our prison are able to participate at the same level. Not everybody accepts a dialogue with power. And the greater the participation, the greater the number of signals that come from it. The more the sectorialization of the prison world becomes visible. Much remains to be said concerning the question of accepting a relationship with the prison institution. I'm not going into all that today, having done it many times in the past. But let's take the question of parole. That this is not something that can be summed up as a direct relationship <clears throat> between prison and prisoner. Before parole is granted, there is a whole procedure called, quote, treatment. The choice of the word is no coincidence in, the prisoner, in that the prisoner is seen as a patient. <clears throat> the treatment is a series of decisions that he or she must make one after the other. It begins with a meeting with the psychiatrist, then there is taking a job inside the prison, and that depends on your not having had any problems inside, so it's something that goes on for two or three years. <clears throat> That's it. You have to choose the road of bargaining with power well in advance. A legitimate choice, for goodness sakes, but always in the optic of that desistance for which one says, I don't feel like carrying on. I'm not damaging anyone, and I'm going to take this road. Well, if the guard behaves in a certain way, I pretend to look at the wall that seems to have got very interesting all of a sudden. If there's a problem, I'm not saying a revolt, but a simple problem. I stay in the cell, and I don't go out into the yard. All this involves a choice. There's no clear alternative between detention and parole. That's pure theory. In practice, it's not like that. Basically, this problem exists for prisoners who have a coherence as revolutionaries. But prisoners in general, who find themselves inside for their own reasons, have never claimed any, quote, political identity to matter, no matter how rarefied this concept has become. See things in terms of the practicability of a choice and do not pose themselves such problems, even remotely. They have their own personal history and the way it fits in with what the law offers them. This itinerary takes two or three years. It's not something that happens in a day. 
Of course, the prison of the future, which I believe will be far more open than the present one, will receive more attention, so will be far more repressive and more closed, totally closed, towards the minority <clears throat> that does not accept bargaining, does not want to participate, and refuses to even discuss anything. That is why I have spoken of the relationship between participation and division, a relationship that is anything but obvious at first sight. <clears throat> Things that seem so far apart turn out to be close together. Participation creates division. So, what to do? We have often asked ourselves this question as far as prison is concerned. I've just read a little pamphlet. <clears throat> I hardly ever read anything about prison on principle, because it disgusts me to read these texts that go on and on about it. But, as I had been asked by some comrades, I accepted a, quote, family discussion, let's say. So I was saying, I read this pamphlet. I, it was published by the comrades of Nautilus Publications and contained an abolitionist text on prison, then an article by Ricardo Deste. It was interesting, even though I didn't understand exactly what he wanted to say. I mean, whether he was making a critique of abolitionism or not, or whether he couldn't manage to do it so completely, given that he was presenting this pamphlet. But there's something I, didn't, I don't like in this text, and that it is what I want to say. And when I see Ricardo, I'll tell him. He condemned, absolutely and without appeal, those who have been theorized or carried out attacks who have theorized or carried out attacks against prisons in the past. This judgment seems wrong to me. He says this, bear in mind that Ricardo is a very good comrade, whom you perhaps got to know at one of his conferences here in Bologna. He says, quote, These attacks were nothing. They were senseless. In fact, they have built the prisons anyway. But come on, dear man. You, who are against efficientism in every way, you say something that is entirely efficientist? What does, quote, they built the prisons anyway mean? Perhaps anything we do when it doesn't produce the desired result or doesn't reach the desired goal isn't worth a damn? Sorry if I put this so simplistically, but the question of the attack on prisons is of particular interest to me. But no, prisons must be attacked. They must be attacked. That doesn't mean to say that once it has been decided to attack them, they will all disappear, or that because we have attacked them once, we can say we are happy and will do nothing else to destroy them. I remember the attempt to destroy the prison of Sosilano when it was being built. The attempt was made, but the prisons of Sosiliano were built all the same. Well, what does that mean? That the attack was pointless? I don't think so. Because if we were to come to that conclusion that Ricardo did, Perhaps by the slip of a pen, as I'd like to think, we must condemn everything we do. Because nothing that revolutionary and anarchist comrades do is guaranteed to obtain the desired result and reach its goal in absolute. If that were the case, we would really all be at peace. Concerning Ricardo de Este's text, it should be said that I don't know just know his ideas from reading the pamphlet on prison, but also, though through spoke, having spoken to him. Ricardo is a fascinating person, but when you listen to him or read him, you do well to separate what he writes from what he says, the wheat from the chaff, to see how much is valid and how much is the fascinating way he says it. In my opinion, a separation of a kind he makes on the question of a possible interaction between reform and extremism doesn't exist. In reality, there are not struggles that are reformist and others that are revolutionary. It is the way that you carry out a struggle that counts. As we said earlier, the way you behave with others counts a great deal. If I behave with my companion in a certain way, am I a reformist or a revolutionary? No, these are not the alternatives. It is more a question of seeing whether I am a ambassador or not, and if I make a distinction between my way of being and my way of acting, my way of being in the intimacy of my relations with those close to me, and my, quote, political way of appearing, then the distinction about reformism becomes valid. It is absurd to talk about these concepts in abstract. The individual must make up his or her mind as to what their basic choices are in everything they do. 
If not, if they are continually copying out, they will clearly be revolutionaries in word alone. Or they might conquer the world, but in order to do what? To enact a new theater of Greek tragedy. The above distinction only exists in the world of the politician, that of the spectacle, representation, in Schopenhauer's sense of the term. If you reduce the world to this representation, don't let's forget that Schopenhauer lent his binoculars to a Prussian officer in order for him to take better aim and shoot the insurgents. This is the man who talks to us of the world as representation, not the one that some anarchist readers have dreamed of from his book. Then, yes, it is about possible to make a distinction between reform and revolution. But again, again, this is chatter. These abstract ideals don't exist in reality. There is the individual, with everything he or she relates to, and through this relating, contributes to transforming reality. So you can't make precise distinctions about the things they do. All the theoretical distinction between reform and revolution is not as significant as was thought in the past. Now, a few words on the question of efficientism. This is a question that people work out for themselves. I come from a culture and a way of thinking that could be defined efficientist. I was born in an efficientist atmosphere. I come from the school of efficientism. Then I convince myself that this gets you nowhere. I convince myself, theoretically, maybe in practice I am still the same, but at least in theory I can see the difference, that not all the actions one carries out necessarily obtain instant results. That is fundamental. It is important to understand this for many reasons. First of all, because there is a tendency, especially among revolutionaries, to present the bill, and let's not forget that revolutionaries are greedy, they are exacting creditors. They are very quick to rig up the guillotine. They don't wait for anyone. This is something terrible. In fact, what is this guillotine of the revolutionary? It is the consequence of efficientism because it reaches a certain point, then begins to... I read something recently concerning the stupor caused by of Lenin's writings. Many are shocked because Lenin ordered the present proprietors to be killed. That doesn't surprise me at all. The killing of present proprietors is quite normal when done in the name of revolutionary, revolutionary efficientism. Either one is surprised at everything to do with efficientism, or one doesn't wonder at reading something of the sort, because it is quite normal. Either one is surprised at everything to do with efficientism, or one doesn't wonder at reading something of the sort, because it is quite normal, a logical consequence of the choices made previously. If one wants to reach given objectives, there are certain costs. This is the concept of efficientism. The question of efficientism concerns how to set out a struggle correctly. For example, the struggle against the prison institutions that hang over each and every one of us to a certain extent. My father used to say, Quote, we, owe, we all own a brick of the prison. We have a brick each, he used to say. Not that he understood much about prison, but it was a well-known Sicilian proverb at the time. So, let's make prison become part of our whole intervention in reality, in intermediary struggles. The latter are the struggles that we carry out without expecting any great results, because they will properly, probably be recuperated, or because they are circumscribed. If these struggles are set out correctly, however, they always give some kind of result in a way that is different to efficientism. I mean, if social struggles are poorly set out, they reproduce themselves. And how can they be set out properly? First of all, by getting away from the question of the delegate and the expectation of any outside support. In other words, by self-managing them. Then, they obviously shouldn't be carried out in accordance with the precise deadlines that are fixed in the laboratories of power. So they might start off from a different way of seeing things, from a logic of permanent conflict, conflictuality. These two concepts, self-management and permanent conflictuality, are then combined with a third, the absence of the need for immediate visibility. The effectiveness of a struggle does not come from the utopian vision of reality, but from the real possibility of setting it out in a way that eliminates any possibility of its being transformed into quantity and getting quantitative results. 
This is possible. In fact, if we think about it, it was always possible. We often make the mistake of wanting to circumscribe the struggle in order to be better understood. By intervening in something specific, such as the factory, for example, it is easy to see the characteristics. The struggle for wage increases, holding on to jobs, fighting pollution at work, and so many other things. And we don't see how prison can fit into that, because we think that people wouldn't understand us as well as if we were, widened, if we were to widen the argument. In itself, the struggle, let's say in a factory, is always an intermediate one. How might such a struggle end up? At best, when we reach the original objective, the workers would save their jobs. Then everything would be recuperated. The struggler is recuperated. The bosses find an alternative to redundancy money. They find an alternative to dangerous work. They find further investment to improve conditions, etc. This kind of situation satisfies us, and in fact it is all right from a revolutionary point of view if the initial conditions of timing permanent conflictuality, self-management of the struggle, and everything else were maintained throughout. But it is no longer satisfying if, in the name of efficiency, we prevent ourselves from including prison in it. Because for me, the question of prison must be present in all the struggles we carry out, like any other aspect of the revolutionary discourse. And if we think about it, it is possible to do something of the kind. When we don't, it is only in the name of efficiency, because we think that we won't be understood, or that we might seem dangerous, so we prefer to avoid the question of prison. A few words now on the abolitionist position. Bear in mind that I am not at all, I am not all that well prepared on the subject. <clears throat> First of all, because I don't agree with the abolitionist position as I understand it. So I might miss something out. Oh. If what I say turns out to be lacking, well, correct me. I was saying, don't agree with the abolitionist position, not because I want prisons, of course, but because I don't agree with a position that wants to abolish part of a whole that cannot be dissected. In other words, I don't think that it's possible to talk about abolition as opposed to attack. In other words, I don't think that it's possible to propose a platform to abolish one aspect of a context that is organically inseparable. I don't agree with proposals to abolish the judiciary, because for me such proposals don't make any sense, or to abolish the police for that matter. That doesn't mean I'm in favor of the judiciary or the police. In the same way, I don't agree with the abolition of the state, only its destruction. And not only do I agree to that, but I am ready to act now towards such an end, whenever that is even if it is extremely improbable in the short term. I mean, I am ready to do something, and can discuss what to do in terms of attack against this or that specific aspect of the state, and so also against prison. In other words, as I see it, the problem needs to be upturned. It is not a question of abolishing a part of the state, such as prison, for example, but of destroying the state, obviously not completely and all at once, Otherwise, we would put it off to infinity. It would be like following that famous direction in history that is moving towards anarchy in any case, but we would end up doing nothing, waiting for this anarchy to come about by itself. On the contrary, I am prepared to do something today, right away, <clears throat> even against a part of the total institution, state, so against prison, the police, the judiciary, or any part of the essential component of the state. This is the concept that I wanted to make clear. What do these ideas actually correspond to? Let's spend another couple of minutes. Don't get restless. I swear I won't bore you much longer. If you think about it carefully, the idea of abolition in prison comes from quite a precise theoretical context, which frankly I don't know, but something I do know a bit more about was born alongside it. <coughs> in America, at the present time, a number of universities are working on the question of the transformation of democracy within general philosophical ideals, but also in sociological theory. There are various American thinkers, the most famous of whom is Nozick, who have examined the concept of a communitarian life without sanctions, without sentences, and without any instruments of oppression. 
Why are they taking up this problem? Obviously, because these enlightened people realize that the democratic structure, as we know it, cannot go on long, and they will have to find another solution. They need to look and see how communities could emerge without certain elements that are natural to the existence of the state, such as prison, the police, state control, etc. This debate is not something marginal. It is at the center of political and philosophical ideas in American universities, and in my opinion, abolitionism, correct me if I'm wrong, could be taken up by this movement. But this is a question that needs to be gone into by someone who knows more about it than me. If I, I don't want to say any more on the subject. Now let's say this was a kind of was this this let's say that this kind of problem, especially in theorists like Nozick, <clears throat> there are also others, but their names escape me at the moment, is an indication of some of the practical needs of the management of power. <clears throat> Evidently this historical model of democracy, for example, Tocqueville's book, is no longer acceptable. That is not the democracy we're talking about. Other structures are required today. Take a country like China. How will the future democracy of China be able to base itself on a model such as Tocqueville's? How could a parliament with 26,000 members function, for example? Impossible. They must find another way. And they are working in that direction. We can also see a few signals here in Italy in a different sense institutional transformations, as they say, that are the expression of the generalized malaise of democracy, but also men of letters who seem far from democratic cover-ups, such as Foucault, have given their contribution to the perfectionment of prison and a rationalization of the instru- institutional structure. Concerning Foucault, we could say that, at least as far as I know, given that I know his work on the history of madness best, Two basic lines of thought run through his work. One relates to overcoming, and the other to maintaining a process and act. The result is that this theoretician always leaves something ill-defined, and all his proposals, even that concerning homosexuality, both as seen as both diversity and normality, it is never clear what he actually opts for. Ambivalence is characteristic of this thinker, and not only for him, but all those who are trying to keep themselves on an even keel. Basically, for him, the prison question concerns an instrument whose use he is unsure about. He would like to do away with it, but does not have anything else to suggest other than putting, in, put in, in, putting it in parentheses. In fact, at a certain point, he gives the example of the Nab de Foy's Foles, which was a prison, asylum, orphanage, and rest home for old prostitutes all at once. He writes that the Nav au Follet was realized in a few days, that it takes very little time to realize it. At a time where society was expelling individuals who are different <coughs> from certain cities, I'm not talking about homosexuals, it put them outside the walls. And these individuals, not knowing what to do, migrated from town to town, so at a given moment they were taken and put on a ship, a ship of mad people. This ship started to sail from port to port because nobody wanted it. A ship perpetually in motion. At that moment, prison was created, as well as the asylum, the orphanage, and rest homes for old prostitutes, because at, the, at that time, society could no longer tolerate their presence. Certain social functions had disappeared, that of the madman, who in medieval society was seen as one touched by God and that of the beggar, who in Catholic countries was the object of charity, the basis of Catholic Christianity, don't forget. With the development of Protestantism, the beggar became an object of capture, so had to be held separate. When society can no longer use him, the figure of the beggar becomes superfluous. He disappears as a receiver of charity to become a prisoner. Today this society no longer needs prison. The thing, prisoner, must disappear. How do you do that? By taking a ship and putting all the prisoners on it? But the thing, prisoner, does not disappear when the ship becomes a prison, in the way that the French did with those from from the Paris Commune who were deported. They put them into pontoons, boats moored at Le Havre, and people stayed in them for five or six years, prisoners in a floating prison. Now society no longer needs prisons, 
as some enlightened social theorists are saying, so let's transfer the prisoners to another social institution. That would be the project seen from the abolitionist point of view. And here, in Foucault's discourse, turns to perfection. That's what I wanted to say. Now let's come back to the question of attack for a moment. I am always for the specific attack. The specific attack is important, not only for the results that it produces, not only for the effects it produces that we can see before our eyes. None of us can can claim to be functionalist, because if we were to fall into that contradiction, we wouldn't do anything at all. So, first, prisons need to be understood, because we can't do anything if we don't understand the reality we want to fight. Then they have to be made comprehensible to others. Then they need to be attacked. There's no other solution. They must be attacked as such. These attacks contain nothing of the great military operations that some imagine. I have always thought of these attacks as a day out in the country. One says to oneself, I feel hemmed in today in this anarchist place. Frankly, I find them a bit depressing. And I want to go for a walk. Let's not stay shut up in this place. Let's go out for a walk. By that, I don't mean a student-like attitude, because that's stupid. But let's just say, without too much drama, it's always possible to go for a walk in the country, and it's not bad for your health. And without spending too much time discussing things and transforming a day in the country into a kind of crusade against all oppressors, past, present, and future. No, something pleasurable. A day in the country is an activity that must also give us joy, but it is also something specific. But prisons should also be attacked in the context of the struggle in general, that is, in the course of any struggle that we manage to undertake. And that is something that we have been saying for about ten years. No matter what we are doing, or what we are talking about, we must make prison a part of it. Because prison is essential to any discourse. When we are talking about living areas, health, etc., we must find a way, and there is one, to include prison in what we are saying denouncing all attempts to muffle its potential to disturb social peace. Bear in mind that prison is an element in movement. As we have seen, it is not something static and finite. For the enemy, prison is an element of disturbance. They are all always thinking about what they can do to solve the problem of prison. Now, their problem of prison must become our problem, and we must think about it during the struggles we carry out, if we carry them out. All this, of course, while awaiting the next insurrection. Because in the case of insurrection, it will be enough to open up the prisons and destroy them forever. Thank you.